Hello, I'm Zev Neuwirth and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas and bold solutions on how to advance the creation of a customer-oriented, value-based and humanistic system of health. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. Folks, there is a quiet and maybe not so quiet revolution happening in healthcare today. It's the transposition and transformation of healthcare delivery out of the legacy bricks and mortar sites, the hospitals, emergency departments, clinical facilities into the home. Large payers and retailers are spending literally tens of billions of dollars acquiring companies and other assets to bring medical care into the home. And there are already dozens upon dozens of companies that exist today and more are continuing to emerge to position themselves as vendors and providers of care in the home. And with the increasingly sophisticated remote patient monitoring, the telemedicine, predictive analytics, and logistics software capabilities, we're seeing those companies provide a more personalized and contextualized type of care that, to my mind, is not only more convenient, but actually superior in some ways to care that's provided in the clinics and hospitals. And we're going to be asking our expert guest today to share his industry-leading experience, his superb perspectives, and his wisdom on this topic. Before I formally introduce our guest, though, I'm going to make a request of you. If you find value in the podcast, please share it with your colleagues and also rate it online. A number of listeners have already begun rating and sharing the podcast through LinkedIn and Twitter. And to those of you who've already been doing it, and to those of you who are going to do it, I greatly appreciate you taking a moment to spread the podcast and importantly, to spread the word on creating a new healthcare. I am so pleased to introduce our guest today, Dr. Mark Prather, who co-founded Dispatch Health in 2013 and serves as its CEO. Dispatch Health is a leading provider of comprehensive, convenient, high-touch, and high-tech home-based medical care. Since its launch, it has delivered high-acuity care to hundreds of thousands of patients with industry-leading patient satisfaction scores and literally medical cost savings that exceed $700 million. Dr. Prather has an impressive track record, both in clinical and entrepreneurial domains. He practiced as a board-certified emergency medicine physician for more than two decades. He was a founder and served as president of U.S. Acute Care Solutions, an integrated acute care physician staffing organization serving approximately six million patients annually. He has partnered in multiple medical industry startups, including iTriage, an early digital patient navigation tool. Dr. Prather obtained his undergraduate degree at Vanderbilt University. He attended the medical school at UCLA, where he graduated with honors AOA, and he completed his residency training in emergency medicine at Denver Health, where he also served as the chief resident. He then obtained a master's of business administration from the University of Colorado School of Business. Mark, I've been waiting so long to have a chance to interview you. How are you doing today? Doing great. Thanks for having me. It's such a pleasure. Such an impressive background. So. Quick question before we dive into Dispatch Health. What is the actual origin story? I mean, you started out really as a, not only a clinician and a clinical leader, but also as an entrepreneur, businessman, executive in the sort of brick and mortar emergency department. What was that transition? What led you to this space? Yeah, it's an interesting journey. And Dispatch Health really is the culmination of, of my entire, entire career, if you look at it. And I spent to your point, most of my career inside the hospital. Uh, that was my job and where I felt very comfortable um, and helped build a company along the way 
that staffed, you know, everything from the emergency room to the hospital ward, to the ICU, to the skilled nursing facility. It was a little bit more than a decade ago when I just looked in the mirror, uh, so to speak, and and realized that we were missing something. Um, I think first off, I realized how things had changed from when I you know, started practicing. I was getting lots and lots of complaints uh, from consumers, from patients who, who really were receiving bills that were unexpected and were exorbitant, frankly. And so you know, that sort of misalignment with the consumer looked problematic to me, to my core business. The other thing that I was watching, you know, I was old enough to have practiced in our first iteration of value-based care where we didn't do it quite right. But I was watching entities like Optum, like CareMore, like VillageMD, and was increasingly impressed with what they were doing and realized that they were probably doing it right. And it really looked to me like this next iteration of value-based care was inevitable. And it looked like it was being done, frankly, outside the hospital. And if done well, what they would do is that they would disintermediate me in the building and the, the way I was planning on, uh, you know, paying for my kids college. Uh, so so it looked like there were some headwinds to my core business. Next, and probably very, you know, uh, unfortunate, but serendipitously, I had a couple of my close relatives hospitalized and one went through a post-acute stay. And the experience was was really rough. Uh, it felt like they were, you know, uh, we were trying to kill them every other day. It didn't. It did not go well. And it led me to um, the literature. Let's just call it aging in place, where I really started to look at some of the the work of some of these early geriatricians in the '90s, who were really arguing that in the hospital we could potentially do more harm than good. And just to be honest, that was not on my radar. I had grown up in the hospital. High acuity care was delivered in the hospital. That's where you did everything. Uh, at least that's what I thought. Um, and, but as I looked at the, that work, it really dawned on me that we, you know, we were missing an opportunity and that there were some patient populations that were completely disadvantaged by what we were doing. And so I got to know a lot of these folks, folks like, um, you know, Al Sue and Bruce Leff and became you know friends with some of them and um, started to think that if we could recreate that high acuity care setting and do it in this what looked like more efficacious place the home and do it for less man that would be really interesting and and so i started to look at my background and think well high acuity care at scale that's what i do every day i can do that in my sleep I had spent some time building some technology and I knew we'd need that. So I thought, you know, I knew enough technology to be dangerous. And then in business school, I studied logistics and, and queuing theory, thinking, you know, I could optimize my own buildings. But, you know, when you think of a distributed health system, which is essentially what we're building, um, that could come in handy. So, um, frankly, I, you know, I was the dummy that thought he could go build a uh, distributed health system. And that's that's the origin story. Thank you for sharing that. And what's really interesting, and I think important here is that, and I've heard this from others who have crossed over in, into the home-based care domain, a personal story where so someone in your family or a close friend has been in the hospital and you see it not from the clinical side or the physician side, but you see it from the patient family side and realize that it may not be the best way to go about doing high acuity care, at least for some of the conditions and situations. And again, I've just heard that over and over again. And 
this notion of even over a decade ago, you began to realize that you, in fact, as a bricks and mortar leader, could be disintermediated by what was happening in the home, particularly for seniors and the elderly. So I just think that's just, again, really, really forward thinking. And I love the fact that it's coming from a consumer perspective as well. Mark, I was having, this is a true story, I was having lunch with a bunch of friends and there was a new person there who's a physician, super, super smart guy. And kind of, what do you do? What do you do? Sort of conversation. And I said, oh, you know, very interested in, in the home-based care ecosystem. And he just kind of looked at me with a blank stare. And now he's a subspecialist, works in a large system, healthcare system, but had no idea, no clue, blank slate, whiteboard when it came to home-based care. I mean, he could relate to the fact that we have a post-acute care division and they do transitions of care. And he, he's familiar, obviously, with telemedicine from his experience in the pandemic and having to do some visits virtually, but really did not. And so I, I found myself in this position of having to paint the picture of what's been happening in this industry. This, I, I don't know what to call it. Actually, maybe I'll leave it to you to give it a name, but something's been happening where there is this market shift. And so I'm wondering if you were sitting there with us and I turned to you and said, Mark, could you explain to Dr. So-and-so what's going on, this shift to the home-based care system? How would you kind of painted that picture for him? Yeah. And, you know, I, I was the same person 10 years ago <laughs> mm-hmm. when I, when I read these articles, uh, yeah, I remember, you know, some of Bruce's articles and the, and other people who were publishing on this, um, there was, there's quite a bit of data, uh, when I was starting to look at that a decade ago. And I think the largest meta-analysis, um, you know, suggested that there, in addition to medical cost savings and in addition to improved satisfaction, that there was a 20% mortality reduction hmm. for admission to the home versus the hospital. And so, you know, I mean, these, these results are just off the chart. And so um, the way I often talk about it is, you know, we can nowadays provide essentially substitutive care for things that we just assumed had to be done in the building. And, a, and an example that I would give to a subspecialist is I'd say, you know, have you ever put a gastrostomy tube back in? And, you know, this is a tube that goes into the stomach. Uh, they often pop out, uh, you know, a little bit better today than they were 20 years ago. But um, as an ER doc, uh, every Saturday morning, Sunday morning, I'd put two or three of them back in. And these were folks who were in the skilled nursing facility, had to be driven via ambulance to the ER and then driven back. That ambulance cost is a couple thousand dollars. The ER visit a couple thousand. If they had to go to the, you know, the IR suite, that's another couple thousand. And so what if you could just do that at the bedside? Because it's actually a pretty easy procedure and confirm its placement. Um, well, nowadays we have so many tools right at our, our disposal. So we at dispatch, we actually own mobile imaging. So we can bring that gastrographin test right to the bedside, x-ray, ultrasound, echocardiography. I can walk into a room with a suitcase that has a moderate complexity lab in it. Crazy, right? And back probably when you and I trained Zeb, the the EKG machine was 100 pounds. Mm -hmm. And now it's the size of an iPad. So all of those diagnostics that we just assumed had to be done in the ER can now be moved to the home. And if all of that diagnostic and treatment capability can be moved there, well, can't you just move the admission there? You know, and, and again, it's we're not doing cholecystectomies in the bedroom, um, but we can admit congestive heart failure exacerbations, COPD exacerbations. And, you know, our data, as well as the literature, would suggest that that's actually better for many patients. So 
it's it's just people wrapping their head around the idea that we can we can actually replicate everything that we thought we had to do in a building, do it right there in the home, do it for less with better outcomes. In our previous conversations, you've shared another example, which is the diagnosis and treatment of a deep venous thrombosis, DVT. Mm, yeah. Tell us the difference between, again, the brick and mortar and what you're offering now for that. Yeah. And, you know, this is an example that I often use when, when people say, and they use the word hospital at home, which I think is a, a unfortunate misnomer, because all we're doing, frankly, is evolving towards the outpatient setting, clinical care that, that you know, we can now do safely and, and better. And so the example that I often give is the treatment for a deep venous thrombosis or a clot um, potentially in your blood leg, in, in your leg. And so, uh, it, you know, a decade ago, what we would have done in the emergency room, uh, maybe a little bit more than that, we would have admitted you to the hospital on bed rest and we would have given, we would have given you IV heparin for a few days. And that was the treatment. So along comes these uh, innovations, and we can now actually just send you home with uh, subcutaneous lobinox, another treatment that doesn't require IV um, administration. And so that's just one example of a disease state that has evolved to the point where treatment at home is, is the norm. And that's really all we're doing in this regard is we're evolving a subset of the emergency room, a subset of the hospital ward, and a subset of the skilled nursing facility and moving it into the home. A moment ago, you said that as you researched the literature, even a decade ago, but and, and now it's obviously more advanced. And, and what are some of those benefits you were talking about? And I think a lot of people would find this surprising, a significant decrease in mortality. Why are the costs? Why are the benefits at a high level? Could you kind of share that with us? Yeah. So this is, this is, uh, this is the old clinicians in the room will understand this. So um, you know, and I practiced in the Denver market and there was a time where Denver had, let's call it eight or nine hospitals. That was it. Um, and each of those hospitals had specialized to some degree. If you were a trauma patient, you went to one of two facilities. If you were a cardiac patient, you really went to another two facilities. And those were the areas where they were really at best, best at that type of care. And, um, you know, as healthcare became um, very lucrative, uh, we began marketing and we began thinking that, you know, well, if I don't accept, if I'm not a uh, trauma center, then I won't get, you know, the easy car wreck. If I'm not a cardiac center, then I won't get the atrial fibrillation patient. And so this was really the rationalization in the boardroom to one, uh, grow brick and mortar everywhere, but two, um, you know, forget about specialization because your competitor was across the, the, the town. Every, everybody needed to be a cath lab, to have a cath lab, and everybody needed to be a level two or one trauma center. And so we went through that exercise over the course of the last 10 to 20 years, and it added a whole lot of cost, right? If I've got to have a neurosurgeon on call, if I've got to have a cath lab at the ready, that is really, really, really expensive. And frankly, you know, there were plenty of hospitals that I helped staff that did three or four cats a year, probably not where you wanted to have your cat. And so we, we built all of this infrastructure that we then passed on through our facility fees to the consumer. Well, guess what? We don't really need that, right? We just need good clinicians. We need diagnostic tools, which aren't that expensive. Um, and we need some medications, which again, you know, IV Lasix, not exactly expensive. Mm -hmm. And we can do all of this treatment 
at home for the subset of cases. Again, we're not doing neurosurgery or a cholecystectomy, but uh, for bre uh, bread and butter medicine, we can do that safely at home for a lot less money. In our correspondence, you said something that in your advanced care program, which is sort of the hospital substitution as opposed to, let's say, ED mm -hmm. or urgent care, yeah. which are other services you offer, and I'd, I'd like to expound on that in a moment, but you mentioned that you can successfully manage the top fifth percentile of complexity. And I thought that the care would be maybe the lower 30, 40% of complexity as opposed to the higher hospital complexity patients. So can you say something about that? Yeah. And this was recently, we, we went back and looked at, at all the patients we've admitted over the last, you know, three years or so. And, and we ran what's called a Charlson comorbidity index. And all of these patients were in the top fifth percentile of complexity and risk, which means they're approaching about seven comorbidities. Um, really interesting, right? Um, and, you know, I, I honestly was a bit of a doubter when we started all of this, but to watch um, the engagement from the patient, even, even these really sick folks in their own care, it's just dramatically different than when I would see folks in their bed in the hospital, right? There's less dementia overnight. I'm actually a, a participant in my care. If you think about what we do in the hospital, you, it's completely passive, right? We mm -hmm. put you in a gown, we tie you to a bed, mm -hmm. you know, don't fall. And you're not really involved in your care. We do things to you. One of the examples that I saw that just my mouth dropped is, you know, I, I practice on the ward and, and, you know, doing physical therapy in the hospital, it, it's a bit humorous, right? Walking up and down the hall, you go out to the steps or something like that, but doing physical therapy in the home. Well, how do we get you to your toilet? How do we get you to your kitchen, right? It, it is really tailored. And, and frankly, I think that's the secret sauce of the outcomes. You know, again, I'm a skeptic and I looked at this literature and I went, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, sure, sure. These outcomes are that great. But then the more I watched it, um, the more I started to understand what we're doing is we're giving our clinicians this augmented data set. Um, back in the day when I was an ER doc, you would come in and see me. And, you know, to be frank, I probably spent seven or eight minutes with you on average. Um, you'd come into that room. We'd put you in the paper towel. Uh, it'd be a gray room. We'd have maybe, you know, before EMRs, I, I had to call for a chart that took, you know, two hours to come up but I'd have a little bit of context about you, but that's it. And then that job in the ER is really to determine if you're sick or not sick, can you go home? And if you go home, really, I'm writing almost the same care plan for everybody. You know, you tailored it a little bit, but it wasn't, it wasn't really tailored. And people don't feel like divulging a ton of information with that arrangement I just described. Now you take the same well-meaning clinician and you plop them on a couch in a living room, right? Mm. And you watch the elderly patient barely walk across the room. You've noticed that there's absolutely no car in the driveway. You know, you learn that there's really no family involved at all. And so when you go to write that discharge, are you really going to write, go see your doctor in two days? <laughs> right? right. You know that they can't fulfill that. Right. You're almost embarrassed hmm. to, to write that care plan that we wrote all the time in the building, right? Because it was convenient and easy. So I think the clinicians just automatically start writing more customized, tailored uh, care plans. They they really understand the disease state. What you know, we often pass off as like a little little 
confusion or a little weakness or, you know, things we don't really understand are much more clear in the home. It's much more obvious that we've got a medication issue or a uh, food insecurity issue, things that, you know, manifest as, as, as medical issues, but truly are socioeconomic. So helpful. I, I love your saying that's sort of the secret sauce of it. You have all this advanced technology, like you were saying about the EKG in the labs and all the communication tools and the logistic platforms and all that sort of stuff. But the secret sauce, as you put it, is really that the clinicians and the team has such a better understanding of the individual patient, their family, their surroundings, their context. And again, on the other side, as you were saying, the patient is and their family is much, much more empowered and you don't have all these issues of how disorienting, which everyone knows and anyone who's ever been in a hospital knows how disorienting that environment and disempowering that environment is. So even in the best of hands, and again, this is not a criticism of people, I think in, in the hospital system, they're doing their best job, but it is what it is. And I, I just, I really love that. Quick question, a little bit more about outcomes. Again, another thing you shared in, and I'm still in my mind, I'm still having this conversation that I, I messed up with that doctor when we had lunch. So you're helping me now. Next time, I'm just going to tell him to listen to you in this podcast. You mentioned that per hospitalization, you're able to generate savings that are literally thousands of dollars per hospital episode. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, and I'm thinking others are, are wondering, this all costs money to get the equipment and the personnel into the home. And again, the lost efficiency of, of the so-called window time when you're driving back and forth and all that sort of stuff. How much are you, do you think you're saving per hospital admission and, and how, mm -hmm. how are you accruing those savings? Yeah. So on average, we save somewhere between five and seven grand per admission. Now, what people think of when they think about admission costs, they think about just that three day or three and a half day admission. Um, you really need to look out, let's call it the next 30 days at the total cost of that admission. And so if we did that, um, the way we approach it is we, we look at um, for the risk bearing entity, the total cost of the, let's call it the DRG or the bundled payment plus the professional fee. And we offer a discount right off the top. So we, we generate some of the savings right there. We then take that bundled rate and that just like a DRG, we're on the hook for all of the costs in that high acuity phase. Call it the, you know, the clinical care, the nursing care, physical therapy, DME, 24 hour attendant if it's needed, you know, all the technology, et cetera. After we come out of the three and a half um, day, days on average of high acuity, we have a motto that we never discharge, right? And um, basically they stay on our service for the next you know, 27 days um, through this sort of 30 day bundle. And we continue to monitor them. They have 24 seven nursing access. We have what we call nurse Sherpas who are checking in with them. Um, and we essentially are, you know, monitoring their progress in that post-acute journey. What do we do in the hospital? You know, we kind of, you know, you know, uh, wave our hands a little bit, give them that crummy discharge and, and send them home. Um, and so our readmit rate at the end of 30 days right now is running at about 6%. And again, you heard we're not cherry picking patients. These are really sick patients. If you compare that to typical brick and mortar of between 15 and 20% with an average cost of readmission of, you know, call it 10 grand, 11 grand, that's again, where we generate some of the savings. Our model really, um, most of the time does not require any sort of post-acute facility or uh, a lot of times really even any home help. So there's additional savings sort of in that post-acute 
uh, period in terms of other utilization. So you add all of that together over time, and that's how you end that up that, with that five to seven thousand dollars. Yeah, that's brilliant, and it's so interesting the compare and contrast. To your point, you're in the hospital, that whole discharge, that whole post acute care, that transitions. It is treacherous. In fact, it is the most treacherous yep. part of healthcare in terms of safety and quality and, and just readmissions and costs. In fact, it's really interesting. I was looking at some population health data the other day, and I was sort of shocked to see across the board that the 30 to 90 day so-called post-hospital period, in terms of total cost of care, it was actually, in, at least in, in the instances I was looking in the conditions I was looking at, the costs were actually two to three times the actual cost of the hospitalization. <laughs> which was to me startling and surprising that a $10,000 hospital visit was one thing, but then you were seeing costs of 20 to 25,000 in that 90 day space afterwards. So either due to nursing home costs or, or long-term stay costs or readmission costs or other complicating costs. And so it's really, then you compare this to what you're talking about, which is you're already in a home and you just dial down the services and you're really monitoring and, and continue to care for the patient for that 30 day period. It's so fragmented, right? Yeah. I mean, we, we're handing off to this provider and that provider and this provider, and none of them are talking. And so this concept of you know never discharging. And the other thing that we do is we invite our primary care partners um, and our model, we can talk about it, it's not a, not a longitudinal primary care model. We really consider ourselves the high acuity partner in the home, but we invite our primary care partners to beam in and round <laughs> on their patients, right? So they can do it in the acuity phase, high acuity phase, but they can also stop in in the post-acute phase so that really by the time that they're transitioned back in 30 days, that primary care doc really understood what uh, understands what happened, and and that's I found uh, very very rare, right, with our hospital system. Yeah, that's that's really cool. Wow, talk about yeah, you're right about the fragmentation and, and kind of reconnecting physicians, which is such a big problem. I I can tell you, you know, I've been practicing internal medicine for for many many years, and it got to the point where you you really didn't know anymore which of your patients were in the emergency room or in the hospital. You often found out after the fact, even in an integrated system, it's challenging because you're, you're basically seeing patients all day and you don't have that information at hand. And, and even if you did, you're, you don't have the time to go visit the patient. And so, yeah, it, it's interesting that you're, you're sort of connecting that again, or reconnecting that sort of care, which I think is wonderful and, and critically important. Why don't we take a moment, you've been describing a little bit the higher acuity kind of hospital substitution type of care in the home. Can you Paint the picture of that, but also you offer emergency department care and urgent care. Can you tell us those domains of services? You know, I'm an ER doc, so that's actually how we started. And and I had when we began this company, I I knew that I wanted to, if I had the the time and the capital to to build the entirety of the the ecosystem in the home, everything from the the front door, the ER, through that hospital substitution, through even a post-acute stay in the home. Um, And so I thought about, well, what do you do first, right? And there were other groups that had started really with the hospital at home concept. But the more I looked at that, the more I realized um, it probably operationally was the wrong approach. None of them had scaled, none of these models. And, and people would say, well, it's a reimbursement issue or they're academics and they're not good at you know, scaling things. But, but I think there was a sort of a fundamental uh, issue when you start in the emergency room, because once the patient 
um, hits that door, there's kind of a huge sucking sound upstairs. And there's a lot of folks who are invested in that patient actually staying. And, you know, if I'm the CFO of the hospital and I could admit to myself for, you know, in whatever DRG I would get versus sending the patient home for less, why would I make that decision? Um, number two, the ER doc, we're just not wired that way. We're not wired to to think about holding somebody for hours in the ER while we figure out how to get them home and take more risk. <laughs> That's typically not the way that ER doc is wired. And then I managed hospitals for a long time. And over time, we migrated to this RBU reimbursement model where the hospitalist actually is reimbursed on RBUs, which means that they get paid more if they admit the patient. And so there was all of this disincentive to um, admit patients to the home out of the ER. And if you look in the literature, I don't know, call it a 35% acceptance rate with that approach. And so my thought was, well, let me do something that I think people will understand that sort of ER urgent care concept. And in doing so, I will build the front door to the home. And that's kind of what we did. We're in, I believe, 44 or 45 markets today. Um, we'll see, you know, almost a half million patients just this year in that model. And sometimes when we go in the home, we actually encounter a patient that it meets criteria for in-home admission. So today when we see them and we do our complete diagnostic workup in the home, and again, there's no corners being cut, short of a CAT scan, we have all of the tools that we need to diagnose a COPD exacerbation with a pneumonia and all of the medical treatment, we can then offer an admission to the home if that's appropriate. Um, right now, the uptake or the acceptance rate there is 97% for us. And that's compared to that you know, 35% in the building. And so that's turned out exactly how I thought it would in terms of sort of ease for the patient to understand and sort of you know, operational ease as well. So that ER model was really born in the EMS system. So I'm an EMS medical director by training. And uh, I guess another part of the inception story is back in 2013, um, one of the agencies that I helped manage um, asked to, to move towards a, a model called paramedicine. And back in 2013, that was a new concept where paramedics would practice at a higher scope. And, and they would do a little bit more in the home. And I said, absolutely, we'll support that. But I wanna do this other thing I have in, in my head. I wanna do this on-demand ER concept. And so I was lucky enough to convince one of my nurse practitioners in the ER to basically hop in the car with a paramedic. Um, and then I learned how to be a CLIA lab director. And I was on call with that model for two years. So from 2013 to 15, we saw, I believe, about 3,000 patients that had already called 911, and we were really hardening the, the clinical pathways. How do, you con how do you treat congestive heart failure exacerbations in the home? How do you treat COPD exacerbations? Um, can you do this successfully? Can you do this without harm? Um, and that was, really, that was really the birth of dispatch. But once I realized we could, then, that, you know, then, then we went out and turned it into a real business. So. So it was that sort of urgent care slash emergent care in the home. And so you went there and did that. Yep. And then it was so much, you're saying, that's remarkable that over 95% over of the folks you see at home for emergency care end up staying at home as, as sort of transitioning more into the kind of hospital at home function, which is huge. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, I mean, it makes sense, right? If, 
if I've already taken the trouble, I've already gone to the ER, nobody there is really that invested in this program. So they're not really selling it very well. Do I, am I really going to go back home? Um, you, you, know, you would get a little nervous, right? But if you've already had this experience, and I think you mentioned our patient sat scores, we use a net promoter score, and it's, uh, I believe, 95 over the first, call it 700,000 patients, um, which is, you know, astounding. And I keep waiting for it to change, but it really hasn't. So you've got this time where, you know, the, the clinician's spending on average, call it 45 minutes with some of these really sick patients, hour and a half, and they're developing that rapport. And then, and then you say, you know, listen, Ms. Jones, I, you really do meet criteria. You've got a pneumonia, you've got a COPD exacerbation, you're still hypoxic. This requires admission, but, you know, your CURB 65 score is acceptable. You, your home looks like we could do this. Um, your insurer will pay for it. Is this something you would rather do at home? And, you, you know, you give the pluses and minuses of it and 90, 95, 96% of the time they say yes. Yeah, no, it, it does make sense. Let me ask you about the business model and the mm -hmm. revenue generation. So who's actually paying you for your service? How do you do that? So when I started in 2013, uh, I think my wife thought I was crazy because I was just pouring money into this without really... I wasn't sure if I was writing a paper or creating a business because there was no reimbursement at all for any of this. And so over the years, um, we have created a reimbursement model for the entirety of what I talked about. So everything from that ER slash urgent care visit through the uh, hospital substitution through the skilled nursing facility substitution. And that has been a lot of work, meaning you're working with the managed care um, partners to essentially create a code that mirrors what you would do in the building, but is an outpatient code. Uh, and that's what we've done. But if you take, you know, let's call it fee-for-service Medicare and Medicaid, and there's varying, you know, things you can do in that bucket, but you take that plus our managed care contracts. And I believe we have almost 230 million lives um, accessible to dispatch health. Wow. And so th these are separate, literally, have you, you, you've created separate codes with the payers for for this purpose that's exactly right and and they're all in a bundled construct meaning you know as a consumer you know exactly what the cost is the minute you call dispatch we're on the hook for managing cost within that bundle concept um and that's our you know sort of our initial foray into value but we're still you know predominantly uh, a foot in the fee-for-service world mm -hmm. i will tell you that increasingly we have a two-year path to risk mm -hmm. and if you think about what we do, we really bend the part A dollar, whereas most of the longitudinal risk-bearing models are, I think of them more as, as part B models. Now they do manage ER per thousand down to a certain point and it admits per thousand down to a certain point, but we can then step in and be that substitutive model that can lower cost even further. Um, because you know, there's only so much you can do without a dispatch over the phone, right? Or even in your office. Right. And so um, that is really where we're headed is taking risk on that part A dollar. And there's lots of ways to do it. Everything from, you know, post-acute bundles through, um, you know, subcapping some of that part A risk uh, to, you know, co-managing populations that are really do better in the home, like dual eligibles or homebound uh, Medicare patients. Given the cost savings you were talking about before in terms of Five to seven thousand dollars per hospital admission. Again, including the post-hospital care. Just connecting that to what you just said, I, I would think that 
payers would be knocking down your door to, to say, yeah, let's, let's do, let's do a, an emission bundle. Yep. Uh, that's exactly right. Yeah. So we're, you know, and, and, and payers want to make sure that you succeed. And I think we're doing it the right way. You want to be methodical about having all of the tools to do risk well. And so we've been building that we've been building the muscle in terms of new hires that are, you know, really, really good at this stuff, probably better than me. Um, and really, you know, frankly, measuring in a fee-for-service situation what we think we'll, we will do in risk. And then eventually we'll transition into those risk arrangements, probably a little bit less upside-downside to start, but then that's that's our goal in two years is to be upside-downside. Thank you for sharing that because in the conversations I've had and in the work I do as well, it's that's really the challenge. How do you How do you know how much things actually cost before you sign the paper and say, we'll take the risk for that? Yeah, no, that's that's huge. That's really, really smart. You, a few minutes ago, actually towards the beginning of this conversation, you talked about building the world's first distributed health system. What do you mean by that? <laughs> well, you know, I like I said, I wanted to recreate aspects of the emergency room, the hospital ward, the post-acute facility. And we've we've kind of done that. We've built this chassis. That, you know, if you look at what we address in that ER model, you know, call it 60% of ER visits, right? If you look at what we address in the admission model, call it 20 to 25% of, of what can be admitted and really almost the same number in the, in the post-acute setting. So we've now got this really interesting, you know, sort of component of the health system. And then what we're doing is we're layering on uh, all of these incremental high acuity services that would augment what we do. And the first we added was uh, mobile imaging, which I knew very little about, but pretty amazing technologies developed over the years and, um, you know, digital pack systems. And so I can wheel in and get a really high quality x-ray. I can do an echo. I can get a DEXA scan. I get, you know, it's pretty amazing what you can do. And so we, we added two companies that were longstanding, high quality, 30 year old companies that have really helped us understand that business. And so right today, we're looking at other acquisitions that would bolt onto this platform to really essentially provide short of surgery and ICU, one-stop shop, distributed health system, meaning and distributed meaning, you know, we can really do this all over the place. We're in 44, 46 markets today. Um, and all of that is managed centrally with a single uh, technology uh, that we built in-house, single internal call center. All of our docs that are virtual and nurses are virtual are multi-state licensed. And you start to be able to, you know, really distribute and practice, practice across the entire U.S. But, so you do have sort of a command center if you will, or, or, or yeah, it... yeah. I think, you know, is there, there are people who use that term to uh, sell things, <laughs> I think, um, yes. but, but we, we have our own, we call it mission control and, and our headquarters mm -hmm. is in Denver. Um, but really, frankly, if you were part of mission control, you could beam in virtually from anywhere, but um, a lot of us are, are, are in Denver. Um, but, you know, in this day of COVID, every, we learned how to virtualize everything. So our multi-state licensed docs, they could be really anywhere. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and in terms of some of these added capabilities, I, I guess I'm wondering about things like a, a lot of this is just getting people into the home, like physical therapy and occupational yeah. therapy and IV infusion. Is that, is that already in place or are those some of the things that you're adding? 
Well, uh, so I would say that, you know, in every market, we do build out um, that infrastructure. And there are things that really, it doesn't make, I don't have any desire to be a home health agency, right, with, with in-home nursing. Um, so I can find really nice partners to do that. But mm. the high acuity uh, differentiation and the things that weren't typically done in the home, that's, that's really what we look at. I think, you know, call it in-home hemodialysis, right? Or perhaps infusion. So some of those things that would enable, you know, frankly, higher acuity and better care, that's what we're looking for. Mark, what have I missed here? What is there something about what you do that is really kind of core and important that we haven't talked about? Well, I mean, you've done a great job on hitting on most of these things. And you know, I, I use this term called the efficacy of the home these days, um, which, you know, is is that literature that I talked about, which I've now become a complete and total believer in, uh, in that, you know, you've got this more tailored care plan. That's where you're getting these uh, uh, lower mortality rates and lower adverse outcome rates. Um, but there's there's other things. There's these really personal relationships that you know, probably developed back when my uncle, who was sort of my inspiration for becoming a physician, did house calls, right? There was a reason you did the house call to understand the family. And, and so like in that advanced care program, we have folks who stay with that patient for 30 days and really, really get to know them. And so one of the things that we do is we uh, routinely address goals and care. It's, a, it's part of the care model. We do that on every case. And it's not a checkbox like you, you know, I would have done back in the ER or the hospital where, okay, check, I talked about it. It's, it's an evolved conversation that happens over time. And many of these patients are super sick. This may be you know, their last hospitalization before they decide to go to palliative care or hospice. And, and frankly, we're, we're transitioning folks into how, uh, hospice or palliative care from that model about eight to 9% of the time. And I can honestly say, I mean, I, I was a pretty good clinician at talking about end of life issues, um, but, you know, you're, you're disadvantaged doing that in a, in a brick and mortar setting many times. And so this ability to carry on that conversation over the course of 30 days, do it in a setting that's more comfortable to the patient. I think, you know, you're really, really helping people understand end of life, which I think is something that's just better, better done in the home. Yeah, what a great point and, and so challenging in the hospital setting to do or even yeah. in the clinic setting. It's just, we don't do well at that as a healthcare system. Mark, if you were going to give a critical piece of advice or recommendation to healthcare system leaders across the country in regard to home-based care, senior care, what, what would that message be? Well, I, I think the message is that it's inevitable. Um, and I think the message is that the the healthcare system necessarily has to evolve. And it's, it's tough when, you have, when you're servicing all of this brick and mortar to make that call, right? Uh, that's really disruptive. Um, but I, it's the right thing to do. And ultimately, if, if the health systems don't evolve, and we partner with roughly 18 to 19 across the country uh, to sort of help with this evolution, it's going to get done to them. <laughs> and, you know, there are large risk-bearing entities that are building all of these capabilities, right? And um, the disintermediation word comes up. And, yeah. and that's, that's what's going to happen. Because if you're, if you're stuck on charging those really high prices to service that brick and mortar that can be done a lot cheaper elsewhere, 
you're in trouble. And so, mm-hmm. so my, my, I guess my point is this, this is inevitable from an old hospital system guy, um, probably time to start looking, um, looking towards the home. What a great message. Mark, you're clearly a very different sort of thinker and doer. What do you think has made you different? Kind of, is there a set of principles, values that underlie how you think and act? Or was there a big influence that sort of sets you up in a different way? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. So I was born creative, which is nice. Um, I probably was born with a certain level of, uh, you know, anxiety that I, you know, standing still really felt uncomfortable. Um, and so, you know, I, I think early on, I, I think I had my first band when I was 11 or 12 and I've always been a musician. And the minute I got into medicine, um, where I was happiest was when I could create. And frankly, I should have known that when I chose emergency medicine. And when I did, you know, the specialty wasn't very old back in the sort of early 90s. And I remember the chairman of surgery, because I graduated, you know, AOA at UCLA, he, he basically called me into the office and said, now you don't want to go in that ER thing, uh, AOA at UCLA, we, you know, we do neurosurgery, we do ENT. <laughs> and, right. and I said, No, 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 I really want to go there. And, and in retrospect, I think what I wanted to do was, was be a part of something new, right, and building it, because we were still building it back then. Um, and so I am most happy when I'm building and creating. Um, and it's probably just, you know, a, a genetic flaw. <laughs> no, I don't know about that. We should all be more flawed like that. Mark, it, it is just, I know our time is coming to an end here, but I, I can't tell you what a great pleasure it is to speak to you. Every, every time I speak to you, I, I come away feeling elated and excited, and enthusiastic, and uh, today is no different. So again, just, just want to thank you. Thank you. And every time I do this podcast, I conclude by thanking everyone out there who's listening, who's doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients and, and those of you out there who are supporting those who are taking care of patients. I and we truly appreciate you for what you do and recognize how critically important your work is to individuals, families, communities, and our society. And of course, given what we've been through in the past couple of years with the pandemic, just appreciate you all the more. My friends, this is Zev Neuwirth. I'm creating a new healthcare. Until next time, be safe and be well.